Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. talk to young people a lot of times and I tell them the number one thing that's indispensable in your life, if you will put yourself in a position to have fresh frequent encounters with Jesus, you will be alright. You will be alright. To put yourself in a place to encounter the resurrected Lord frequently. Don't let your first encounter be your last. And God will do more through your life than you ever dreamed and imagined possible. If you have a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33 is where we're going to turn. We're in a series called Essential Oils. Essential Oils. Many of you looking up on these diffusers, diffusers up here. Um, you know, the essential oils is kind of the craze of, of our culture right now. and has been, I guess, for several years. And we're talking and tracking the history and the use of oil in Scripture. And uh, do we have any message cards remaining? Yes? Awesome. Did anybody not receive a message card? You can raise your hand right quick. Awesome. One over here. And um, you can follow along in the YouVersion app as well on, um, on your Bible. Thank you for those that are, are streaming live. The devil, I want to make a statement here. And, and I'll give you the reason why I'm making the statement afterwards. But the devil does not want you to hear this message today. You say, Craig, that's kind of bold to say. It's kind of arrogant, confident. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to read one verse, and when I read this one verse, it'll become very clear to you not only what we're talking about today, but why the enemy does not want us to hear this truth. I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes 4.12, and then we're going to look at Psalm 133. Ecclesiastes 4.12, the King Solomon said, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. For three are even better. For a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. You go into Psalm 133, and the Bible says, By behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil. Everybody say oil. Sensual oil. The oil on the head of Aaron, the priest running down on his beard, the beard of Aaron running down the collar of his robes. It all the way drips to his feet. He said it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon, same as Sinai, Sinai, Zion, the same as Jerusalem, the mountains of of Jerusalem, God's place. For there, watch this, there, where? Where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. There, the Lord has commanded the blessing. God has commanded a blessing on the place of unity, life forevermore. What we're talking about in this message today is unity. In fact, I want to give you the title. The title is Unity that demands oil. Unity that demands oil. When you look at the landscape of American life and even on the earth today, it doesn't take much time at all to see that unity, especially in the house of God, is under attack. We live in an age of rage. We live in a culture of anger. We live in a culture of diversification, not in a good way, but in division way or divided ways. The devil hates unity. You say, Craig, The devil hates unity. Yes, he does. Especially in the family of God, it's under attack. The scripture is very clear. We need to understand the devil's playbook so that we can stomp him out the way we're supposed to stomp him out. We're supposed to be understanding of the devil's schemes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a a season where you're praying for something that is so important to you that it's up here, that it makes everything else in your life that you're praying for down here. Have you ever been in that kind of season? You've been in that kind of season. Normally happens in crisis, right? And unfortunately, I don't like it, but most people don't change until they experience enough pain. That's just the way life is, unfortunately. If we would change a little bit earlier, we'd probably go through a whole lot less pain. But most of us don't change until it gets too painful. And what happens is it kicks us into a moment or season of praying where we're praying and there's one thing that's so high on our list and everything else seems so minuscule. You ever been there before? God, I just want you to do one thing. Lord, everything else seems so low. I've been in that season before. And Jesus finds himself in that season. Jesus in John chapter 17 is about to go to the cross. This is his deathbed speech. If you've ever been there with a family member when they're dying, their voice goes low. You lean in. You're not checking your phone. You're definitely not Instagram storying. Your eyes are 100% focused on the mouth of the dying individual. 
Jesus, this is his deathbed speech. The disciples are leaning in. He's about to go to the cross. He's actually about to be betrayed by Judas. And this is an entrance into the Holy of Holies. Some have called this the clear picture of, of Jesus praying for one thing or his last prayer. And thank God that the account of Scripture gives to us this beautiful picture. It's uninterrupted. And we find what the prayer life of Jesus looked like. And he prays for one thing, church. One thing before he gives his blood. Let's take a look at it. John 17 and 9. He said, my prayer is not for the world. Those that, in other words, have not come to know me yet, but those you've given me. Because they belong to you, Father, and all who are mine belong to you. And you have given them to me so that they, watch this, may bring me the Son glory. Now, I'm departing from the world. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to ascend to the Father. I'm going to go back away from the world. But they're staying in this world. I've not saved them to take them out of the world. But I am coming to you, Holy Father. You have given me your name. I'm known by your name. Now, watch this. Now, protect them, who? The disciples, by the power of your name. But that's not the whole end goal. The whole end goal of this whole prayer is about this next thing. It's predicated on why. Why does he want them to be protected? Here it is. So that... They will be united just as we are. I want them, the disciples, to be united as we are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want the union that's Trinitarian to become a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 20. He goes on. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but for everyone at DP today who will believe in me through their message. And he says, I pray that we will all be one, one, Just as you and I, Father, are one. You're in me, Father. I'm in you, Father. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I'm in you. You're in me. Now we want them in us so that they get wrapped up in the same Trinitarian fellowship, the same Trinitarian dance. Why? Because it's when they become unified in me and I in you, then the world will what? Know that they actually sent me the Son. That's how the world knows. I've given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I in them and you are in me. And may they experience, this is, this is the verse that gets me, folks. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That is a powerful sentence of Scripture right there. Jesus says, may we as the body of Christ experience such unity that the world would know God sent his son to the earth and that the world by our unity would know that God loves them as much as he loves Jesus. The world would know God loves them as much as God loves Jesus by the church loving one another the way he loves us. That's what he prays. That's his last prayer. Now, as we go into the points of this message, I want you to understand something. The first two points of this message are about the devil. Because remember, I want to help you understand not just his playbook, but his motivation for dividing us. To understand why he is so much of a divider. Why the enemy wants division, particularly in the house of the Lord. Point number one, if you're following along, the devil is a deviant divider. The devil is a deviant, deviant divider. The Greek word for devil is the word diabolos, and diabolos comes from a root word diabolane, and diabolane is the verb which means to split. So before the devil is even an accuser of the brethren, before he is the adversary, he is the splitter. That's what he does. His number one objective is to split. Diabolane, I want to come in and split. Found in his very name is the fact that he is a divider. But the question is, why is the devil such a deviant divider? But let me give you two things to ponder that just might be the reason why his motivation to divide is so strong. Let me give you the first. Number one, because he hates the Father, he hates the Son, and he hates the Holy Spirit, and he despises their unity. You want to know why the enemy is a deviant divider? Because he hates the Father, he hates the Son, he hates the Holy Spirit, and he despises their unity. Think about it just for a minute. The Trinity is the epitome of unity. The Trinity is the epitome of unity. Unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity. What we would call perichoretic relationality. That's a good theological term to mean that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they dance with one another. That they're in perfect. Three individual distinct persons, yet one God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one. And it's as though the devil looks at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and he says, okay, the three of you are going to be known for unity? Fine. I and my demons are going to be known for division. Let me trace it through scripture. Adam and Eve divided. 
Cain and Abel, divided. Jacob and Esau, divided. Joseph and his brothers, divided. Do I need to keep on going through the whole point of Scripture? From the outset, the whole objective of the enemy is to divide that which God joins together. He's about splitting. He's about pulling apart that which God has put together. Why why is he so intent on dividing? One of the reasons he's so intent on dividing is because he hates the Father. He hates the Son. He hates the Spirit. And he despises their unity. But I think there's another reason. I think the bigger reason why the devil is such a divider, deviant divider, is because, number two, a house divided cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. Mark chapter 3, this is our Lord speaking, not, not Paul, not anyone else. He said, if a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And Jesus then looks at him and says, if a household is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. The devil knows a house divided cannot stand. Of course he's trying to divide you in your marriage. Of course he's trying to divide us in the house of God. He knows you can't stand. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write this down. Of course the devil does not want the church of God to stand because it's only when we stand that we can step on his neck and crush the enemy under our feet. Of course he doesn't want the church of Jesus Christ to be unified because when we're unified, we stand. When we stand, we step on his neck and we crush him under our feet. What was the messianic promise in Genesis 3.15? Eve, guess what? Sin is now in the world, but I'm going to send forth, right, my own seed. And what's going to happen? He is going to strike Satan. He speaks to him. He's going to strike your heel, uh, heel, but what are you going to do? You're going to crush him under your feet. What is Advent? What is Christmas? It's that helpless babe coming into the world so that the church of Jesus Christ can stand and put our heel on the neck of the enemy and stomp out the enemy that so desperately wants us away from God. That's, that's Christmas. That's, that's the story of Advent, that God desires for his house to stand. Of course, he doesn't want us to stand. When he knows a house can be divided, he's going to try to divide that house. Now, there are a couple of ways I feel like the devil's winning at this. You don't have to agree, but I'm going to tell you what I think in ways. This is several ways I think the enemy's winning in this, in our day and age, our dispensation of time. Now, think about this. Acts chapter 2, birthday of the church. Acts chapter 2, you got to understand, it tells us and helps us understand that the reason or one of the main reasons the New Testament church exploded is because of their unity. Think about this. They worshiped in the same place consistently. Temple to temple, house to house. Think about this. They all had one mind and they saw everything that they owned as belonging to the whole, not the individual. They sold their possessions and gave to each one as he had need, right? And, And unity was one of the reasons that the early church exploded. But I got a fear today. And I fear that too many believers have become so comfortable with distance from the house of God and distance from the family of God that they merely see worshiping together on the weekends as an inconvenient scheduling conflict in an already all too busy schedule. And in that, I think the enemy's winning. Now listen, I'm the first to tell you I'm the first to tell you, if your church is only awesome on Sunday morning, then it's not awesome. I'm the biggest proponent. I'll tell you that all day long. But let me tell you something. In order for the church to exist, guess what it has to do? It has to gather. It has to gather. Now, one-third of Americans cannot attend church on Sunday due to the workforce. That's why we've already started this conversation in our own church. Can't fight against that. We have to provide opportunities. The church won't stand. The church can't stand if the church doesn't gather. How could the church exist if the church doesn't come together, right? And so we got to understand, that's gonna, the, by 2050, they're saying that's going to be up to 50% of people are working on Sundays. Okay, so was it 50% of Americans are not going to have the opportunity to join the church of Jesus Christ and be a part, understand health, wholeness, encouragement? No, there's got to be a, a, the gig and the entrepreneurship. Even since President Trump's been in and the, the economy's good, everybody's an entrepreneur. Good, we love entrepreneur spirits. But listen, that's having a huge impact on attendance because you work your nine-to-five job Monday through Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday you do your entrepreneur thing. you got to get it off the ground, right? you got to do the gig off the ground. That hurts church attendance. was not that way 50 years ago. Let me give you another one. Commune or group involvement has severely hurt church attendance. I'm not just talking about traveling sports, although that's one, but group involvement. There's nothing sacred anymore. Ballet, recitals, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I mean, there's nothing sacred. And you say, Craig, should we have to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I believe it's one of the ways the devil is winning. Statistics say the average believer in America does not attend church twice a month or 1.4 times. 
1.4 times. Now, let me ask you. Craig, the church handbook, the church planner's handbook would clearly state you cannot tell people in this day and age and time that they need to be in church every weekend. Yes, I can, and yes, I will. Who says I can't say that? Why? So that we get a lot more people, so I feel confident that you listen to me preach? No, it's because the health of the church has been healthy because God's people have consistently gathered together since its very inception. Until the day she comes back, or God comes back for his church, the same will be true. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. Worshiping, worshiping together consistently as a family was a key part of the church being healthy. So we have to gather together with believers. That's why it's so important that you not just gather with other believers, but you get connected in your connect group, right? That you get connected with some group of believers that become where you experience God's unity. So we have to talk about it. Now listen, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I get it, man. I got three kids under the age of nine. I get it. We feel like taxi service, Mosgrove taxi service. With the sports and the things that are going on, I get it, I get it. But we have to fight for unity, especially in the house of God. And it's no good if we're worshiping together inconsistently. Let me ask you a question. How will we ever experience the powerful unity the church in the beginning experienced when we worship together so inconsistently? We won't. We won't. We have to gather together. We have to be faithful to encourage one another. Let me give you another reason where I feel like the enemy's winning in the family of God by dividing us, and that's, he's using politics. He's using politics. He's using politics. Now understand something. I know it's a bold statement, but understand. If a church is divided by politics, it's only because its members value policy more than they value people. If the people of God can be divided by politics, that means the people of God value policy more than they value people. And so we get in our day and age, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a feminist, I'm a chauvinist, right? We don't hear a lot of men saying I'm a chauvinist anymore in our day and age, do we? That one kind of went out of the window in the last 20 years, right? But they're still walking around. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this, I'm, I'm that. Listen, it's gotten to a place where we have let in the church of Jesus Christ what divides us become what defines us, but it's long past time for what unites us to be what describes us, and his name is Jesus. That yes, we're going to disagree on a lot of different things. There's going to be things that we hold different. But let me tell you who we do agree on. It's capital P. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And for us as the church, we've got to get to a place where we have to understand what unites us should describe us. So what that means is if there are other churches in your community that are not doing the ministry the way you want to do ministry, the way you think you should do ministry, you do nothing but encourage them. You do nothing but speak positively against them. That means you leverage all your social media to stop bashing the church down the street or how you've been hurt by this church and that church. I'm not trying to, trying to minimize it in any way, but let me tell you something. There's churches in this area that are paying folks utility bills, that are paying rent for them, that are taking care of their kids, that are helping them. Why don't we start a little campaign that says church help? Man, this church helped me. Man, that church helped me. I went to that church and they helped me. But what we do is we want to only focus on what divides us. Why? Because we have a devil who is a deviant divider. That's his goal. Rip apart, stretch apart, divide, get in between. I want to show it to you in Scripture, Colossians 3.11. Look what he says. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, you're barbaric, you're uncivilized. Some would say I'm uncivilized, coming from Saudi Daisy, Tennessee, slave or free. But what he says, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Christ is all that matters. Listen, I'm all for public discourse. I love it. But when discourse causes division in the family of God, we are discussing the wrong things in the wrong way. We're majoring in the minors and minoring in the major. We don't agree on every position, but we do agree on a person, Jesus. And we, I'm just, just hear me, we have got to get back to what unites us, not what divides us. It's my prayer, folks. It's my prayer for our own community. It's my prayer for Woodstock. How do we? And, I, and I'm not just giving you words and lip service. It's my, it's my priority. I'm pursuing other pastors in our community. I'm pursuing other churches. There is no way we're going to reach the fastest growing county in metro Atlanta called Cherokee County, unless the church and the churches in this community understand there's a regional movement. 
every letter the Apostle Paul wrote, he wrote as a circulatory letter for an entire region. And we are here fighting turf wars when we've got a deviant divider destroying people and destroying families all the way around us. Can you imagine the heart of God and his grieving when he sees us bickering and complaining over something so seemingly insignificant? What leads us to point number two? Satan hates his notes on unity. That seems kind of like a random point. Explain that one. Satan hates his notes on unity. I think some believers are under the mistaken impression that the devil has all knowledge. You ever heard somebody talk like this? You know, like the devil's wearing me out today, you know. I'm like, well, the devil is not omnipresent, so he can only be in one place. So I doubt out of the 7.3 billion people, he was just at your house today. Maybe he sent his demons, I don't know, but he's only in one place. But have you ever heard people talk like this? Right, like he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. Have you ever heard people talk like he's omniscient, like he knows all things? He doesn't. Let me let you in some news. There's one omniscient one, and his name is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me, let me put it in vernacular terms, modern day. If God and Satan were in jeopardy, it would be a whole bunch to nothing. Okay? God knows everything. Satan knows a little bit. But listen to me. Listen to me. While the devil doesn't know everything, I'm convinced it's because he doesn't know everything and he knows that God knows everything that since the beginning of time he has gotten his notepad and he's been taking copious notes from the beginning. I think if we were to steal away with the devil's notebook today and we took his notebook and we went and stole away, we would open up his notebook and we would see some things that he warns himself about. Now, the next four or five things I want to tell you what I think we would find in the devil's notebook. I think if we opened to page one, the devil's notebook would say, be careful, unity gets answers. I think the devil would say to himself, be very careful. Do everything you can to keep them divided. Don't let them be unified. Don't let them be in one heart and one mind. And the devil has seen God make good on these promises again and again and again and again. He has seen him time and time again. I'll show it to you in scripture. I'll also tell you this. Jesus said, if two of you agree on here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name as my followers, I am there among them. You know what that means? That means the deviant divider, he says unity in the name of Jesus gets results. He knows that unity in the name of the Lord gets results. Now, everything in your life, contradictory evidence, evidence is fighting that right now. I know, I know. Well, we've prayed and unified before. I know. I, I, you have to hear God's word. Jesus said, unity gets answers. If you agree on one thing, it shall be granted. Have you ever thought about this before? Maybe it's just a pastor's thought. But have you ever thought about why there's such a big battle going on? At the end of every message, you feel like you should go to the altar to receive ministry? Have you ever wonder why that battle mounts? You know what I'm talking about. The message is coming, you feel God's speaking to you, and you get that wrestling feeling. You're like, I don't want to go forward because they're going to think I'm this. I don't want to go forward because I'm that. I don't want to go forward because they're going to look at me this way. And you get this intense battle. And listen, you always thought that battle was between you and your pride, but that battle's not between you and your pride. That battle's between you and the devil. Well, Craig, why in the world would the devil war with me at the end of a message where I feel the Holy Spirit leading me to the altar to receive ministry? I'll tell you why. The devil is desperate to keep you from agreeing with anyone in the name of the Lord. Of course he's going to tell you to run for a door. If you come forward, you're going to get a believer who understands what you're going through to unite and God's going to answer. Why would he want you to come? Of course he wants you to live in isolation. He can destroy you. Of course he wants you to make you think that your issue is only your issue. Nobody else in the church is dealing with that issue. <laughs> if you were in my seat. I know how jacked up preacher boy is. If, if preacher boy's jacked up, I know you jacked up too. I know what issues are in my family. So there's no reason to come and think, oh, no, God wants us to receive. If the Holy Spirit's leading us, he's leading us. Why? So that we can be unified. We can come into agreement. Why? Because unity brings answers. I think if we open up the devil's notebook, we'd turn to page two. And we'd see something like this. Unity is more effective against its enemies. I think that'd be page two. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine. He said, two people are better than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together and keep each other warm. 
How can we be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two, Bubba and Forrest Gump can stand back to back in the Vietnam forest and conquer. Three are even better. Bubba Gump shrimp. Shrimp scampi, right? For a triple braided cord. Y'all acting like y'all don't know Forrest Gump. It's top three movies of all time, okay? Tom Hanks got two of my top three. That's number three. Number one, I won't tell you. It's the Green Mile. Number two is Dumb and Dumber. Don't hold that against me, all right? So he said a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Think about that. A triple braided cord is not. So the devil has seen this. One time after time after time again where two of us come together in the name of Jesus Christ is a whole lot more frightening to the enemy than one of us coming with the best intentions in the name of the Lord. That the devil hates when we come together to fight him because together unity is more effective against its enemies. Let me say it like this, okay? You ready? Alone is the easiest way to be attacked But unified is the wisest way to bring an assault on Satan's head. Unity alone is the easiest way to be attacked. But unified is the wisest way to bring an assault on the enemy of our soul. You say, why? Because unity is more effective against its enemies. I think if we turn to page three with the devil's notes, we'd get to this one. The devil would have written down, unity drips dues, and demands. Unity drips, dues, and demands. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil, it drips. On the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon. Time out, I don't know if you know this or not, but dew is a very hot commodity in the desert. You know why? Because you got rains. You got rains former, latter. And in between this rain and that rain, the only refreshing you get as a human being is the dew every single night, every single morning. He said it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. Watch this. For there, where? Where brothers dwell together in unity, where sisters come together in unity, the Lord commands the blessing life forevermore. God commands the blessing where brothers and sisters are unified. Listen to me. When you draw near... To the one person in your life right now that you are most frustrated with. I believe that the same God who sent his son Jesus to die for that frustrating person actually draws near to you. When you draw near to the person right now you're most frustrated with. The God who sent his son to die for that person draws near to you. But he doesn't just draw near to you to draw near to you. He draws near to you bringing something with him. Guess what he brings with him? He comes bringing his anointing. That's drip. He comes bringing his refreshing. That's due. And he comes bringing his blessing. That's commanded. Now, I don't know if you, you, you're like me. But I would like as a husband, as a, as a father to walk in God's anointing. To walk in God's refreshing. And to walk in God's blessing. Think about this for a moment. If the devil's mission is to steal everything from me to kill me and to kill everything good and godly about me and destroy me and destroy everything I touch do you think he wants you experiencing the anointing of God the refreshing of God and the blessing of God no but he can't stop God giving it to you all he can stop is you from unifying yourself with other believers so all he does read the screw tape letters all he does all he does is try to throw more bricks between believers spouses why because he does then you don't get A unity that demands his oil, that drips his oil, that receives refreshing and gets a commanded blessing. People always ask me, why do you, when you go to the third world countries, you do mission trips, why do people always, I've taken people on mission trips, why do they always get healed? And everybody gives the good answers. Well, they just have, they have expectation and they don't have doctors to go to and it's the prayer and passion and the word. You know what the number one thing is? Everybody who went on that mission trip is completely unified with one intention for God to get glory. Well, of course miracles are going to take place. But when you come today, you're not. You're unified with what you got after church, where you're going to go, who you fought with this morning. We have all this divided attention. When we get unified, God says, I command a blessing right there. Unity drips, it dues, and it demands. It demands the blessing of God. Of course he's as motivated as he is to try to divide us because unity brings his anointing. Unity brings his refreshing and unity brings his commanded 
blessing. So what's that mean? That means when we're in this season where we're so frustrated with that person, I'm going to have to go out of my way to pursue that person and stop complaining. Can I ask you a question? If God, the Bible says that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. If God is enthroned upon my praises, then who is enthroned upon my complaining? If God's the one that's enthroned when I praise, who is the one that's enthroned when I bicker, complain, fight, speak words that are not edifying? But I think if we went through the devil's notebook, we would come to probably the greatest. There's something that we would see that I think is outweighs more than most, and that's this final one. Unity is unstoppable. The devil knows unity is unstoppable. Remember the story in Genesis 11? You'll remember it probably when I start reading it. It's called the Tower of Babel. Let me read it for you. Genesis 11, 1, 6. This is God speaking. This is not man. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. That's why we always say common language creates common culture. Okay? That's why also you get all these uh, language wars, right? Second generation Hispanics really learn. Third generation learn only English. And first generation like, no, you are only speaking Spanish. Because you lose the Spanish language, you lose the culture. Culture is wrapped up in language. It's the way God created it from Genesis chapter 11. And as the people migrated, watch this, to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and they settled there. And they began saying to each other, let us make bricks and I want to harden them with fire. Watch this. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and, 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 and tar was used instead of mortar. And then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves. Watch that. That we might be famous. Watch this. With the tower that reached into the sky, we will make, that will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower, the people were building. And this is what God says, y'all. This is what God says. It's not what human says. God says, oh my goodness, look, the people are unified and they all speak the same language. After this, after what? After God's people get together and speak the same language and unified, he said nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. God says when my people get together, are unified in heart and mind and speak the same language, there's nothing on the earth they can't accomplish. That's what God said. And what did God do? God comes down and rips the tower to the ground, scatters all the people, gives them all different languages. Why? Because they wanted to make themselves famous. You might want to write this down. The devil has been trying to separate us from God since his fall, but he's been violently trying to separate us from one another since he saw the tower fall. So yeah, the devil's been trying to separate us from God since he was cursed to a hell, but he's been violently trying to separate us from one another since he saw the tower of... Who was on the front row there in the Babylonian plains? The devil. He's watching. He's taking copious notes. Look at these people. God comes down and responds and says, hey, this is, this is unity with bad motive, y'all. This is bad motive unity. And devil sees it and is like, oh my gosh, look how God responds to unity. Look what happens. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to set out to do everything I can to divide. Listen, if that's what's capable of unity with bad motive, can you wrap your mind around what God's people are capable of with good motive and unity? They build a tower into the heavens. See, one of the biggest bullets, people say, I want to fire a bullet at the enemy. Let me tell you how you fire a bullet at the enemy. It's not just you speaking words at the enemy. Oh, you can do that. But the biggest way you fire a a bullet at the enemy, I think in this season of your life, is to fight for unity with the person you find yourself most frustrated with right now. You really want to get the devil's attention? Start pursuing the person that you're ticked off at. The person you're so frustrated with, go after them. Start chasing after them. Seek reconciliation, fighting for, oh, I know you can't be responsible for their return or reciprocation. I understand all that. But listen, you want to fire a bullet at Satan? Go chase after the person that frustrates you most in your family. Go chase after the person that frustrates you most in your friend group. The devil can't stand unity. And so he has been taking thorough notes since the beginning of time. And when we understand all this, and understanding all this is crucial to understanding why the devil is so motivated to divide. Now, the first two points involve the devil. But let's transition now in our final point and talk about you. More importantly, let's not just talk about you. Let's talk about you and the person that God has put in your life that you are most frustrated with right now. 
Let's talk about you and that person. I get it. Y'all understand, right? I'm not making light of it. We've all been there. Many of us right now might be there, the person we're most frustrated with. But let me give you a couple of things. Let's talk about it. Number one, unity. Or number three in our outline, unity demands your commitment. It demands your commitment. Look what Ephesians 4 and 3 says. Make every effort. It doesn't happen by default. It's intentional effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, building yourselves together with peace. Listen, when you become content with distance from one another, you are creating space between one another. Let me say it another way, and I pray you never forget this for the rest of your life. I'm going to say it multiple times. I pray you never forget this. The devil owns all of the acreage between two divided people. The devil owns all of the acreage between two divided people. He owns all of the space, all of the land between two. No wonder family members are caught in the crossfire. Because the devil owns all the acreage between two divided people. Listen, it's easy to come up with another reason why we should be distant, why we should remain divided, but it takes commitment to come close and stay close. When I tell people in premarital counseling, listen, this is a test of endurance. And, and listen, commitment means you have to daily come close and stay close. That is hard. Come close, stay close. That's commitment. Come close, stay close. Commitment. Come close. Stay. It's e it, how easy is it to find reasons to be distant? How easy it is to find reasons to get distance between us? But you say a commitment to what, though? Well, I'm going to give you three quick things. A commitment, number one, we must be committed not to judge. we got to be committed not to judge. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to judge the person you're most frustrated with? <laughs> Isn't it really easy to judge the person that you're ticked off at? Woo! Uh, it's so easy to sit back and say, well, the reason they did that was this, and the reason they said this was that, and the reason they did this at behavior is because they did that. And, and, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not because you know everything. It's actually because you have a critical spirit. And a big part of judging is you thinking that you know the motive behind their behavior. You never know the motive behind their behavior. You imagine what would happen to your life right now if you stopped ever judging people's motive based upon the behavior you see, and you actually went to them and found out the motive? Oh my God, your life would be like on the clouds in three days. You're talking about a peaceful existence. I had a pastor tell me last night, oh, I saw this guy go preach at Winterfest, and the next day he pulled out of the denomination. He said, man, I was thinking that is, that is cruel. I said, bro, you didn't know that he actually told the denomination four months previous, and they said, he said, I don't want to speak, and they said, I want you to speak. See, everybody else at that 20,000 arena thinks that he had a wrong motive behind his behavior, and he had no wrong motive behind his behavior. So I don't know the motive behind another person's behavior. And I have to stop judging. This is what Jesus said about that, by the way. This is what he said in Matthew 7. He said, don't judge others. You're going to be judged. You won't be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging them is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you got a telephone pole in your own? Why are you worrying about their speck when you got a telephone log in your own eye? In your own eye. What that means for us is that we can't. It is impossible for us to judge one another like that, not if we want to walk together in unity. Understand this about a critical spirit. Are you ready? A critical spirit will drive you further away from others than any plane, train, or automobile ever could. So if you want to remain critical all the time, that's fine, but just get comfortable with never being close to anybody. Get comfortable with having distance. Now, Craig, how do I know I'm judging someone? Well, let me give you a real quick thing. I, I think that judgment can be accurately measured by the distance between two people. Isn't it interesting that the closer you are with someone, the less you judge them? When you get close to someone, you don't judge them. You let things go. But what happens is the more intentional space you create between them and you, you heap judgment on them. So the more distance you feel the awkwardness of a brother or sister in Christ and you keep going further and further instead of coming to it, you'll be more susceptible to heap more judgment. You'll throw in the, 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 because the enemy will speak to you and he'll give you, oh, that's why they have, they have a bad motive towards you. Oh, that's why they have it. And then what's happening? He's trying to split. Why? So that you can't get the dew, <laughs> the anointing, the refreshing, and the commanded blessing. How do you judge others? Let me ask you this question. How do you judge yourself? Or even better one. How would you like to be judged? 
typically we judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by what they do. We judge ourselves by what we're thinking. But I don't really want to be judged by either one of those. If my, parent, my, my, my parents, my wife, my kids come to me and say, hey, I'm going to judge you. Listen, you know what I want to be judged by? I want to be judged by my best moments. Can you imagine what would happen in the church of Jesus Christ if you begin to judge the person you're most frustrated with by their best moment rather than their worst moment? you imagine what would happen? Oh my God, you would start coming close to that person and not actually farther away from them. And the devil has so many of us judging that person by their worst moments. Listen, none of us look great if you judge us by our worst moments. Would anybody be willing to put up your worst moment on the screens here for the last seven days? Anybody, you want just to do a little exercise? Let's just all submit, just text let's, our worst moment. Let's all put it. No one looks good when you're judged by your worst moment. If we're going to walk together in unity, we cannot judge one another by our worst moments. We got to judge each other, give benefit of the doubt, assume the best, and show grace. And if you've not experienced his grace personally, it's going to be really hard for you to do that. Not impossible. Here's the second thing we've got to be committed to. We've got to be committed to be quick to apologize and forgive. Be quick to apologize and forgive. Jesus, Matthew 5, 23, this is what he says. He says, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, here's what he says. He said, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Watch this, church, watch. This is the picture of what he's saying. He's saying, hey, Craig, I love it when you meet with me in the mornings. We've been, we've been doing this for, together for years. It, it's one of my favorite times of the day. I love talking to you, and I love you talking to me. And, but, but let me settle something straight with you, son. If you come into my presence with some incredible sacrifice, amazing sacrifice, that's one you brought, but you have a relational fire that exists over there that you're pretending doesn't exist, with all due respect, I want you to leave my presence. If you Hop out of the closet, if you would. And I want you to go be reconciled to them, and then you come back. Oh, oh I get it. I get it, Craig. I like that you're here. I, I love it. But I'm actually more interested in you being reconciled than I am you spending time. When have you heard that kind of Christianity preached? And yes, what Jesus said. If a brother has something against you, go be reconciled before you come into my presence. Don't bring me a sacrifice in my temple until you're reconciled. What does that mean? We have to fight for reconciliation at all costs. How do you do that? You got to be quick to apologize, quick to forgive. Notice what I said, quick to apologize before you forgive. Apologize, it's very intentional, before forgive. Why? Many of us are waiting for that person to come and ask for our forgiveness before we ask for theirs. No, if you're going to be a Christ follower, you're always quick to already ask for forgiveness and to forgive that you go and apologize be the first person you want to have a marriage that the devil is so afraid of you want to have a true marriage and an atmosphere that the devil despises in your home be the person to be quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness all the time how are marriage hurts healed confession forgiveness confession forgiveness next month confession forgiveness confession forgiveness how is it the next month confession forgiveness 42 years from now confession forgiveness if you as a spouse learn how to quickly confess and forgive you've created an atmosphere in your home that the devil cannot stand he cannot stand he can't stand so we got to be quick to apologize quick to forgive oftentimes the best relationships require the most forgiveness just ask Jesus. He loves his relationship with you, but he had to forgive you and me a whole stinking lot. He had to forgive us a lot. And finally, we must be committed to see, appreciate, and celebrate. We gotta be committed to see, appreciate, and celebrate. The reason we keep seeing the devil in the person we're most frustrated with is because we keep listening to what the devil's saying about that person. <laughs> well, that person's like the devil, Pastor Craig. Yeah, you always believe that person's like the devil as long as you listen to what the devil's telling you about that person. Isn't it so interesting how convenient religious, conveniently religious we are as believers? <laughs> you ever thought about this? When the devil comes up to tempt us with our big issue, we say, Get thee behind me, Satan. But when the devil comes to talk negatively about the person we're frustrated with, we put up a chair. You want to eat, you want to eat chicken? You want a steak? I'll, I'll, I'll put a steak on the grill. You want to talk for a while? Hey, I'd love to have this conversation. Would you, would you make me more mad and ticked at them? I would love that. Come on, give me some more stuff. 
right? So get thee behind me, Satan, when he tempts us, but when he's ready to talk negatively about the person we're frustrated with, come on in, baby. Give me a transcription. Write it down. Put it in notes. Help build my case. Again, we have to fight for unity. And listen to me. The biggest open door that you have in your life for the devil to walk through has less to do with the area in your life where your greatest temptation is and more to do with the relationship in your life you're most frustrated with. Can I say it this way? The greatest open door for the enemy in your life is the relationship that you're most frustrated with. It's like an open door for the enemy to come in and to wreak havoc on you and everyone else around you. Why? Because he owns every square inch of the ground between the two of you. So you have to fight for one another and see each other the way God sees us. Come on, Knox. This is my son. Would you put your hands together for this fine young man? Good looking man. Come on, Jesse. So Knox, who's nine years old, about to turn 10. He's got some good form. Played really well in basketball yesterday. I'm really proud of him, but he's my mini-me. Mini-me. He's been my mini-me from the time. My wife did all the hard work of nine months of carrying him, and he popped out and looked just like me. I won't say if she was mad or happy about that, but, I mean, he looked just like me. I mean, I, you know, I just, I just had a couple minutes to do with it, right? And, and she had nine months, you know, so. But nine months later, here he comes. This is little, this is little mini-me. I'm glad y'all, y'all caught that. Y'all were getting a little sleepy. Y- your eyes looked a little sleepy, so I had to catch you. He looks like me. He thinks a lot like me. If you're talking to him and he's just staring at the wall, he's not ignoring you. He's just thinking. When he looks to buy something, he researches things like me. He's like me a lot. His toes, you took off his socks, his toes look like my toes. And I would catch my wife sometimes looking at Knox do something and she'll look over at me and she'd be like, oh my God, that is just like you. And I, as a father, catch myself sometimes looking at him and I'm like, man, that is just like me. And I love it. Man, he's just like his dad. But I don't know if you know this or not. But that's what God says about you. You're his mini me. You look just like your father. And there are times he looks over the balcony of heaven and he says, oh, watch this, angels. He's about to forgive that spouse. Watch this. Oh, yes! Woo! That's just like me. I love it! Oh, oh gosh, watch this. He's, he's going to witness. He's going to witness. Oh, look, he's going to share my grace. Watch this. Oh, yes! Woo! That's just like his daddy. I love it. I love it, man. You look just like me. He's going to look over. Oh, daughter, do it. Do it. Are you going to do it? Oh, Speak words of life even when they've cursed you. Ah, yes! She did it! That's just like me. You and I are many me's. Why? Jesus Christ, we are called Christians, little Christ. Little Christ. And we need to be reminded of the fact that He says, This is my Son. I created you in my image and listen you need to be reminded that the person you're most frustrated with he also says that about they were made in his image too would you bow your heads with me I want you to close your eyes just a moment I want you to think about the person on your list and your mind that you're so frustrated with so frustrated with And I want you to start writing out a list in your mind of all the reasons why you're distant, all the reasons why you should be mean, all the reasons why you can't come close. Just write them all out. I believe the Holy Spirit's speaking to your name. Maybe He's giving you a face. Go ahead and just write out the list in your mind. Now I want you to open your eyes. Look up here at Knox. I want you to look at him and remember... The same way I look at my son is the same way God looks at the person you're frustrated with. 
And it grieves his heart to see you so frustrated with somebody he's obsessed with. Oh, I know what they've done to you is hard. I know, I know. I'm not making light of it. I'm not making light of it. But do you want to live prisoner to bondage and bitterness, despair? Or release them and say, God, you do indeed look at them like you look at me. So I'm going to bless them. I'm going to pursue them. Whether they receive it or not, I'm going to pursue them. Speak your love. Share your love. Why? Because life is too short to keep judging them. Life is too short. It's time to fight for unity and come together so we can fight against the one who's been fighting against us, between us, since the beginning of time. We're going to start the new year. Vision 2020 was something called deepen to broaden. We've got four priorities we believe God's given us as a congregation. Four priorities. I love it because it's been my number one prayer that God would give us multicultural ethnicity. Not just multiracial church, but a multicultural church because it displays the gospel. Multiculturalism is not the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. So there's always room to grow, but I've been praying God. I, I, I've been intentional. I reached out to an African-American brother who's a pastor in our community. Probably about 65% church is black. And he said, yeah, man, you white people. He said, y'all get done with one song and y'all capo in that guitar again to move right on to the next song. He said, we like to linger about 7, 8, 10, 15, 25 minutes, you know. And I said, it's exactly right. And I said, listen, regardless of where you're at in here, we're going to have to be more expressive in our worship. Can you hear me? In 2020, if we want to reach people that are of different ethnicities, you get, we're going to have to do it. Oh, Craig, is this tokenism? No, no, tokenism is when you have a desire for somebody to stand in front to use them to get what you want. I'm not talking about tokenism. I'm talking about us pursuing Asian leadership, a black leadership. Oh, you just want black people on stage so you can get black people? In the, no, no, I'm not talking about tokenism. I'm talking about oh, people say, well, well, I'm not a racist. This is what white people say. I'm not a racist. Well, that's not the point. The point is not, oh, you're good because you're not racist. The point is, are you diversifying and intentionally going after people that are not like you? If you look at Acts chapter 13 when they're ministering to the Lord, I can't find any other reason why he lists those five people, Simon from Niger. He gives five different regions of people all gathered together in spiritual leadership. Hellenistic Jews, those who are Jews. Paul was a Jew and he said, to the Jews I become like a Jew. That don't make sense. You're a Jew, Paul. What's he saying? He's saying, I've taken my Jewness off to a third race that is a Christ follower that I actually have to put back on my own race to reach people of my own race. Because there's a third race. Your first race is, is this. Your second race, okay? Second race is the one that ultimately you are not defined by. But your third race is the one that we as believers stand above. There's one problem. Look at this right quick. Go back to that slide. One problem, sin. One Savior, Jesus. One race, human. One hope, the resurrection. One calling, world evangelization. That's it. It's just one. And I'm praying in this new year. That is our focus. God, you would unify us. That we would intentionally seek out people that are not like me. Not like us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.